I sometimes equate autophagy with sleep. We think about sleep as our rest mode, and yet there's an enormous amount of activity going on during sleep, especially what's called the glymphatic system, which is similar to the lymphatic system, but the glymphatic system happens in the brain during sleep when brain cells shrink by 40 to 60%, and this is seen in animal models, which opens up the channels in the brain to detoxify because the brain is active going, going, going all day. And during sleep, the downtime, you detoxify your brain. Well, the sleep is the rest phase. Autophagy is the rest phase. You have to have both of these phases for good health and good detoxification. And basically, autophagy is detoxification of every cell in your body. And it's also the process of rebuilding and renewing your body. And if you don't get that process, you're going to be using all of these damaged and misfolded proteins and cellular components that aren't functioning at an optimal level, and that is accelerating the aging process. Welcome to Nutrition Without Compromise, a podcast brought to you by Orlo Nutrition. We believe that nutrition shouldn't be an either-or, that you should never have to sacrifice your morals for your health or that of our home planet. Join natural products veteran Karina Belizzi and experts from around the globe as they discuss healthy solutions that are better for you and better for the planet. Welcome to another interview episode of Nutrition Without Compromise. I'm your host, Karina Blizzi. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome back an expert in anti-aging colloquially known as the natural pharmacist, Dr. Ross Pelton. Ross is a certified clinical nutritionist and has a PhD in psychology. In October 1999, he was named one of the top most 50 Influential Pharmacist in America by American Druggist Magazine for his work in natural medicine specifically. He has written 12 books. His most recent book is Rapamycin, mTOR, Autophagy, and Treating mTOR Syndrome. It's available now in its second edition, and I have my copy here right now. This is what we'll be digging into today. So, Dr. Ross Pelton, or Ross, what do you prefer to be called? Ross is just fine. <laughs> It is so nice to see you again. And it's great to have the opportunity to be with you again. Uh, lovely seeing you and we'll have some fun together. I just love that too. And I have to say, this is the first time I had the physical book in hand. So last time I had reviewed the PDF and it's just so different to actually be able to go piece by piece and see you have some beautiful pictures, even in color in here to illustrate turmeric and its power and to look at different people and places that have affected the journey. So it's just really nice to see. And I understand this has become a labor of love for you. So why don't you first just talk about the new research that stimulated this second edition? Sure, I'm happy to. The research in rapamycin is just exploding exponentially. One of the important new studies was done by Vera Gorbanova, a professor in the East Coast and she looked at the studies on long-lived mammals, and that, this is work that had been done before. They've identified the genes that are associated with maximum lifespan. So she did a study with mice. She divided mice into 10 different groups and gave each of them a different type of recognized life extension drug. In addition to rapamycin, there was metformin and 17-beta-estradiol and calorie restriction. They did a number of different life extension therapies. Turned out rapamycin was the number one item, number one therapy for the activation of genes associated with maximum lifespan. And on the other side of the equation, rapamycin had the least effect on activating genes associated with accelerated aging. So now, this is not a human clinical trial, but it really gives some credibility to how and why rapamycin works as a life extension drug. It's, it's really activating the genes associated with life extension, maximum lifespan. Yes. Well, of course, when we look at longevity, I mean, the studies typically start with a fruit fly because they have such rapidly repeating life cycles that you're able to demonstrate change rather quickly. Yeah. But many people, the skeptics, they might say, oh, well, it's just a mouse study. But where does all science begin, right? <laughs> we have to start somewhere. And mammals, guess what? Mammals respond really similarly. Yeah. We can look at the research on APOE4 versus other genome types as it relates to macular de degeneration, mental health decline, and diseases of the brain as well. Yeah. And we make all sorts of leaps from that. So it would make sense that we start here. Yeah. But in the last time I interviewed you, you really talked about 
the origin story of rapamycin and how it came about on Easter Island and the soil is where it was really defined and captured. So it's different than what you would typically see from something like an antibiotic that is marketed on the market, so to speak. Can you talk about what makes it so unique? Well, first of all, I'd like to emphasize that this is a natural product that occurs in nature. It's a product that's made by a strain of soil bacteria. So it's not some exotic compound that the pharmaceutical companies have created that the human body's never seen before or hasn't existed on planet Earth before. So it's a naturally produced substance. And so that's where we begin. And let me just review also the fact that this is an FDA-approved drug. It got approved in September of 1999 to treat patients with kidney transplants because when it's taken daily, it suppresses the immune system. And so these patients that get organ transplants need to be on immune-suppressing drugs for the rest of their life. And in the early 2000s, rapamycin got approved to treat several different types of solid tumor cancers. But these FDA approvals have really been a sticking point or a hindrance to its being accepted as a life extension drug because doctors don't usually write prescription for life extension enthusiasts for chemotherapy or drugs that suppress the immune system. But the breakthrough study was done by Dr. Joan Manick, who was working at one of the large pharmaceutical companies, Novartis, and she had the enviable position of being able to research anything she was interested in. And so she decided to work on aging and look at rapamycin. And she decided to take a group of elderly people, age 64 to I think 85, divided them into four different groups, had a placebo group, a group taking a rapamycin, it was actually a rapalog drug that has exactly the same effects as rapamycin. One group got 0.5 milligrams daily for the duration of the study. Another group got five milligrams once a week. Another group got 20 milligrams once a week. After 12 weeks, she subjected all of these individuals to the seasonal flu vaccine and did blood work to assess how their immune system responded to this challenge of the flu vaccine. And turned out that five milligrams once a week was the sweet spot. These elderly people got a 20% boost in their immune system by taking a rapamycin-like drug once a week. So that was the breakthrough that helped us understand that taking rapamycin episodically once a week rather than every single day provides tremendous health benefits because of its ability to partially inhibit mTOR and activate autophagy. So could this also be related to our innate wisdom that even comes from some religions where we're supposed to take a break from eating for one day out of the week or for periods of time? What are your thoughts along those lines? I'm in total agreement with that. And I think that there's many different ways that people can change the timing of they eat. And in fact, when we talk about food and diet, there's three things to consider. One is the quantity of your proportions, how much you're eating. The second is the quality of the foods you're ingesting. But the third thing that most people aren't aware of, and that's what's so critical here with our topic about rapamycin and mTOR and autophagy, is the timing of when you eat. And so you want to reduce the time that you're intaking calories so there's more time without calories because autophagy is activated when there's no nutrients available. And one of the things I, my explanations for this, for hundreds of thousands of years of human evolution, people did not get up in the morning and go to the kitchen and open the refrigerator and start to make breakfast. People didn't eat three meals a day. And these days, people eat all the time compared to our ancestors. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, in-between meal snacks, desserts, evening cocktails, we're taking nutrients in all the time. So mTOR is always getting activated. And I call this mTOR syndrome, the constant overactivation of mTOR. But consequently, autophagy never gets activated or certainly doesn't get nearly the amount of time that it needs. And so I think this is a fundamental problem that underlies the declining health of humanity. We're now experiencing an epidemic of epidemics. We've got heart disease and cancer and diabetes, metabolic syndrome, Alzheimer's disease, autism. All these things are off the charts. And 50 or 60 years ago, they never even existed in terms of epidemic proportions. 
So I think that the mTOR autophagy ratio being severely out of balance is one of the key fundamental health problems that's facing mankind. And it's actionable. There's things you can do about it. And the natural way to do it is intermittent fasting, or as you just mentioned, maybe take a holiday one day a week where you don't eat, or some people call it the two seven program where two days a week you do 24 hour fasts. The 16 eight protocol is the most common where people, for example, stop eating at eight o'clock at night and then don't eat again until noon the next day. That's a 16 hour period of not eating and you're condensing your nutrient intake between noon and 8 p.m. But any of those different protocols will be beneficial. That will activate autophagy. And one of the things I like to emphasize is that autophagy doesn't really stop working because you age. When you grow old, in fact, you grow old because autophagy starts working. So preserving and activating autophagy is actually critical for healthy aging and healthy longevity. And there's a paper that was actually published on this. And the author of this paper stated, dysregulation of autophagy is a cause and not a consequence of aging. So healthy aging requires that we get more time in autophagy, and this is what rapamycin does for you. It goes into the cell, binds to mTOR, partially inhibits it so that autophagy can start to get activated. Now, I'm sure we know many of the same people in our beautiful industry here, but I'm thinking of some of Naomi Wattel's work, and she was for a while marketing a tea that would help to stimulate autophagy or to put you in this kind of fasting state. Are there other things that can help to stimulate this cycle that you are aware of or that you like to point to? Sure. Just calorie restriction is one way to do it. And exercise is critical for activating autophagy. Getting proper sleep is another factor that's really important. So there's a number of things that people can do in addition to intermittent fasting or calorie restriction. I think a couple of the most important things are regular exercise four to five days a week. And I really emphasize the importance of strength training. I think that's the most important type of exercise. Not that aerobic exercise isn't important, but a group of scientists in Italy a number of years ago did a study with a group of people that were 94 to 105 years old. And they wanted to evaluate what's the most important thing for healthy aging. And they looked at hundreds of different parameters. And it turns out the number one thing for healthy aging is maintain your muscle mass. And in order to do that, you have to do some form of weight training or resistance training on a regular basis. And so things like jogging and swimming and cycling, those are great aerobic exercises, but those athletes are not building muscle mass. So just encourage everybody to get engaged in some form of weight training because that's a critical factor for activating autophagy. Well, and the thing I think we should all keep in mind is that doesn't necessarily have to look like going to the gym to lift heavy weight. You can do body opposition exercises. I mean, you can consider certain forms and yoga even to be stimulating the same sorts of things. So you can use body weight exercises to do this. A push-up is an incredible arm workout. I think all of us know that. Squats are incredible for your lower body. Try doing a chair sit against the wall for two minutes. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and in fact, I think especially as people age, we need to think clearly about what we're going to put our body through, and in, insofar as demands are in our 80s and 90s. Yeah. I mean, I would like to see more than 100. I tell my kids that my desired age is always 60 years in the future, because I see myself as not even close to middle aged yet. That's how I would like to see my existence. And so my birthday's coming up, so it's going to go from 126 to 127, right? Yeah. <laughs> Do the math. Yeah. Or like. And a number of years ago, Karina, there was a doctor back in the 1980s, a famous physician, Dr. James Freeze, who published a study. He got severely ridiculed for this when it was initially published. But he proposed the rectangularization of the aging curve and the compression of morbidity. And mm-hmm. so we start out here, everybody's healthy, and then 20, age 20 and 30, they start to get diseases and health declines. But when you get into anti-aging and life extension, you extend your healthy years for a much greater period of time, and then you compress morbidity into a very short period of time at the end of life. And so that's what we're doing here with all of our life extension and anti-aging therapies, 
And rapamycin is a game changer. It, it is just a revolution in life extension and anti-aging. Well, I hear from people often that they have a hard time conceiving of the idea of even not consuming breakfast or of holding off on eating a meal until lunchtime. So I want to share a couple of things that I think will help the audience. And then Mm -hmm. I'd love to ask your perspective as well. But when it comes to doing something as simple as intermittent fasting to support this whole concept and, and reserve your eating to just eight hours a day, which everybody can do, barring those who might have some blood sugar issues that are in specific treatments. And in that case, you know what? You're working with your doctor. You're following their recommendations. We are not here to give health advice. This is for entertainment and informational purposes only. Probably should have said that a little bit earlier, but I'm saying it now. Okay. (laughs) So as it stands, the types of food you're eating affect your appetite. And if you're consuming ho-hos, potato chips, and Krispy Kremes, and ding-dongs, and all this other junk that is not food food, I mean, we call it junk food, but really it's fillers and sugars and adulterants and things that are more like plastic than food all combined into one thing and that you then put into your body, that you're not actually fulfilling your nutrition needs. And so your body essentially wakes up in this near starvation mode of I need to eat something that's food, right? So you think you're hungry, you go to grab something and you're going for these carbohydrate laden breakfasts that Thank you, Kellogg, for making us all think that we need to eat breakfast be- mm-hmm. as soon as we wake up with when, within a half an hour to stimulate our metabolism. I mean, these are all kind of lies. We know that now, right? So if we change our patterns of eating and we're consuming food that is true food, that is nutritious, and also doing something like supplementing with a good quality omega-3, like those produced by Orlo Nutrition, or also taking a multivitamin, getting your core nutrition met, that it's not really a big deal to wait until noon. I just had a piece of homemade banana bread. And this isn't typically what I would do for the first meal of the day, but I make a protein fortified at home banana bread that's quite delicious. And I use alternative flowers and all this stuff. I had that just before we started recording. And when when did we start? Like 1245? Mm -hmm. I didn't even notice. And it's my belief that I don't notice these gaps because of the fact that every day I'm focused on eating whole foods that nourish my body and then supplementing for the gaps that I see in my diet. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm totally in agreement with you and I'd like to expand on your thoughts. One thing I like to emphasize is that every time you eat, you're hosting a very large party. You're feeding a hundred trillion guests. You're feeding your gut microbiome and all your probiotic bacteria. And if you don't feed them well, they will not thrive and survive. And they are critical regulators of your health. And I'm kind of on the forefront of globally trying to re-educate people about how the gut microbiome and probiotic bacteria really work. Now, let me take a couple minutes to explain this to our audience. The job of your probiotic bacteria is to convert components in your food into secondary compounds that have a wide range of bioactive functions. And so it's not so much the bacteria, it's the compounds the bacteria create that have a wide range of biological activity. They influence not just the gut microbiome ecosystem, but they regulate every single organ system in your body, especially your brain and your immune system. So how do we get probiotic bacteria able to produce these postbiotic metabolites. The two primary food groups for your probiotic bacteria are dietary fibers and compounds called polyphenols. There's over 8,000 polyphenols that have been structurally identified. They're the compounds that primarily give color to fruits and vegetables. Here's the problem. I've got multiple studies that document that from 90 to 95% of American children and adults do not consume adequate amounts of dietary fibers and polyphenols. So almost nobody is feeding their gut microbiome the types of foods that they need in order for the probiotic bacteria in their colon to produce the postbiotic metabolites that are the key regulators of your health. And a key factor here, Karina, is diversity. A healthy person has 800 to 1,000 different species of bacteria. They require different types of food. And so you have to eat a wide range of different types of dietary fibers and polyphenols. So you get different 
types of compounds to different bacteria so they can produce the different types of postbiotic metabolites. And if you do this, then the reason these postbiotic metabolites are important, some of them have direct anti-inflammatory activity. Some of them kill pathogens. Many of them suppress the growth of pathogens. Many of them are cell signaling compounds. Many of them are immune system regulating compounds. Wide range of activity of these compounds. And we're just starting to touch the surface of all of these compounds, what they can do, which strains of bacteria are more effective at producing them. But this is really a new understanding of the gut microbiome. And I will send you a link that you can post in the show notes. I wrote a paper that was published in a scientific journal titled Postbiotic Metabolites, the New Frontier in Microbiome Science. It's a really critical new understanding of how this whole system works. And the second paper I wrote, it was published just a couple of months ago, is titled the microbiome theory of aging. So I'll get those links to you so you can share them with all of your viewers. Well, I think I'll be an apt reader of both as well. Now, I want to also expand on this because I think many people might think, oh, well, I eat a variety of foods. But the statistics are kind of astounding. Most people don't consume more than 20 different foods in a given week. And so if you look at that, it's like, okay, well, maybe you do a chicken salad every day for lunch. And you go ahead and you throw on there some chicken breast to get your protein and you're getting a good 20, 30 grams of protein. So you're supporting your body's needs with that. And you have some arugula or spinach on there and maybe some tomatoes and then a dressing. And the dressing might have, let's say, seed oils, processed oils, and you're getting omega-6s, you're getting no omega-3s with this whole meal. So you're missing a vital component. And the vegetables may or may not be organic, may or may not have the most nutrition. And so you think, okay, I'm doing good. I'm having the same lunch every day. But then breakfast is a combination of whatever coffee drink you have in hand or tea, maybe some juice. And then dinner might look like one of the same five things. So the meals don't actually vary that much throughout the week. Now, one of the things I talk about is regionality of food choices. And also the idea that we should be consuming foods with more seasonality in mind and trying to then expand on the foods that we're eating, even if we get in the same relative pattern on a given week, that it shifts throughout the year from month to month, you're eating different foods. You're not always eating the same thing. How else might you advise people to ensure that they've got more variability in their diet so they're supporting their entire microbiome? Glad you asked. (laughs) I have an eight-minute YouTube video that people can have access to if they just Google my name, Ross Pelton, and uh, Salad Buzz, B-U-Z-Z as in zebra, Ross's Salad Buzz. And what I'm doing in this eight-minute YouTube video is teaching people how to make a microbiome-supporting salad. I've got 16 different types of vegetables in my microbiome salad, and I spend about 20 minutes processing all my vegetables about once a week. And the secret, as I explained in this video, when I'm done, I squeeze a lemon onto the, what I call my salad buzz that I've got prepared. And the vitamin C in the lemon juice preserves your salad buzz in a Tupperware container in your refrigerator for up to a week. And this is a tremendous time saver, four or five nights a week. The main meal for my wife and myself is our evening salad. I go to the refrigerator. I pull out the Tupperware with my salad buzz, a bag of lettuce from the co-op grocery, my health food grocery store. It's got four different types of lettuce in there and two bowls and a handful of lettuce, a handful of salad bar buzz, some wild-caught salmon or some garbanzo beans for protein source. It takes two minutes to make dinner. It's a tremendous time-saving process, and you're really feeding your microbiome. So what I try to get people to understand is the importance of eating a little bit of as many different types of plant-based foods per day as you can. Diversity, diversity, diversity. Now, Ross, I have watched that video and I Uh have to tell you, I loved it and I will embed it on our blog page for this episode so people don't have to search for it. What I love about this salad buzz is that you have essentially made a base that people can then vary. So almost like if you were to look at, oh, okay, well, I'm going to have a starch with my meal tonight, right? They could have the salad buzz, but add components to it to make it unique so you don't get tired of the base either. 
And I just love the colorfulness and that it was easier to consume with like, if you wanted to use a spoon or a fork. I've also seen a recent trend of women choosing to make salads that they can eat with a spoon. So they're cutting them in smaller pieces Mm -hmm. just because it's easier to eat on the fly when you're managing your kids and running around the house and doing everything else, which I thought was really innovative and a simple hack, right? Yeah. Here's something else I'll make available to your viewers. Karina, let me see you get it in front of the camera here. This little booklet, Dr. Here's Probiotics and Postbiotic Metabolites explains this whole concept of postbiotic metabolites and how the probiotic bacteria will make these health-regulating compounds if you feed them well and eating the correct type of plant-based diverse diet. And people can get a free copy of this by going to naturalpharmacist.net forward slash O'Hara book. That's O-H-H-I-R-A-B-O-O-K. I'll send you the link to that too, Corinne, so you can post it for folks. Oh, thank you so much. So yes, that's right, because you are also a collaborator with Dr. O'Hara's on that side of the world. So thank you so much for that. Now, as it stands, what other sorts of habits are you most in love with for supporting true anti-aging so that people can feel younger and more vivacious today than they did last year? Great. Well, Another chapter that I wrote in the second edition of my book is directly related to the question you just asked. It has to do with the age-related disease called sarcopenia. Mm, muscle degrade. Yeah. Term that sarcopenia is the age-related loss of muscle mass and strength. And as we age, everybody has an increasing rate of muscle loss and, and the loss of strength. Dietary protein is critical to try to deal with this sarcopenia, to reduce the onset of it. And what we've discovered and what I've summarized for people in my book is that we normally have a balance between, on the one hand, muscle protein synthesis, and on the other hand, muscle protein degradation. But as we age, there is a decline in muscle protein synthesis, but the rate of muscle protein degradation stays the same. So you end up with a net negative balance because we have a decline in muscle protein synthesis. But what we've learned is that if you supplement with protein or nutritional supplements, whey protein, for example, or amino acid supplements, or just ingest more dietary protein, you can offset this decline in muscle protein synthesis. So it's really critical, especially for the elderly, because as elderly people age, they routinely eat less, but they should be eating more protein. And the other thing I've written about in this particular chapter in my book is that the recommended dietary allowance for protein in the United States is set way too low. It needs to be almost twice as high just to reach where it should be for a normal level. What they call the recommended dietary allowance is really the minimum daily allowance. And who wants minimal health? I want optimal health. So people should be ingesting more protein and especially people as they age to offset the decline in muscle protein synthesis. So that's a critical factor. The other thing that will offset sarcopenia and the gradual loss of muscle mass and strength is weight training, strength training. And the third factor is rapamycin. So there's three ways you can really influence this insidious age-related disease known as sarcopenia. So let's talk about protein needs for a minute, because I have heard various experts say you can only absorb so much protein at once. So you you need to be able to get 20 to 30 grams of protein per meal, essentially. This is one of the reasons that many fitness trainers that I know don't advocate as often for uh, 16-8 fasting for a lot of their, I want to call them patients, but they're not, but the people they're training, right? Their clients, because they want them to get more protein into their diet. So they might mostly be on a 16-8, but they'll recommend they start their day with a protein shake just to make sure that they get the requisite needs met. So how much protein should people be getting? How much can they consume at once to ensure they get the benefit from that protein? And really, at what age should you start to even increase that need? Well, right now, the US RDA for protein is 0.8, 0.8 milligrams per kilogram of body weight, and a kilogram mm-hmm. is 0.2 pounds. I think that people should try to get 50 to 70 grams of protein a day. And I advocate 
dividing it up into two meals around lunch and then again at dinner. I don't want people to eat three times a day because it's absolutely critical that people understand how important adequate activation of autophagy is. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people who are into strength training and people who are exercise physiologists and so forth are thinking that you shouldn't go without protein and without your breakfast meal and so forth. But when that happens, when you're eating breakfast, then, then you're not getting adequate autophagy activation. And one thing I like to emphasize for the bodybuilders and the weight trainers is that although mTOR stimulates muscle growth, you have to have periods of autophagy. And the reason I explain, let me explain that. Proteins are really huge, massive molecules. Mm-hmm. Some proteins have up to 30,000 amino acids in them. And they have very unique structures where they're bent and twisted and folded. And the shape of a protein is totally related to its function. But over time, different types of stress will cause proteins to get damaged and they'll be misfolded and lose some of their structural integrity, but they stay in place. And But then when they're misfolded, they're not functioning properly. And so I use the analogy of a flat tire. You can't put a new tire on until you take the old tire off. It's mm-hmm. the same way with these damaged, misfolded proteins and enzymes and cellular components in your body. You have to have autophagy to get the old damaged parts out so that mTOR can create new healthy proteins and enzymes. So it's you've got to get this period of autophagy to have healthy longevity. Okay. Now you said 50 to 75 grams a day, which to me even sounds a little low. And you can actually increase it. I didn't do the math probably correctly, but uh, what's your recommendation? How how do you go on your recommendation? Yeah, I mean, I just generally see most of the people talking about things like the sarcopenia and whatnot are saying 80, 90, even 100 grams a day of protein. And so if you can only absorb so much of that at once, I wonder how you can split that into two meals and if that's effective or if you're just overdoing it at that point, and then some of that protein just becomes sugars in your system, right? I don't think anybody's really studied this too effectively yet. And I don't think anybody's really looked at twice a day eating and seeing if people get adequate protein for their muscle protein synthesis. Mm-hmm. Um, so a new area, and just like all of this rapamycin research that we're talking about, very new. We don't have all the answers. We don't know if five or six milligrams a week, once a week is the best dose, or maybe it's every 10 days or once every two weeks. And maybe instead of five or six milligrams, it should be 10 or 12 milligrams for some people. This is all very new. But what we do know, and what a lot of the rapamycin researchers are telling us, is when rapamycin is taken episodically rather than daily, it is probably safer than easily available over-the-counter drugs like ibuprofen and Tylenol or acetaminophen. So it's very safe when it's used effectively. And the health benefits and longevity benefits are just astounding because when you start taking rapamycin, every single cell in your body starts to work better. But I emphasize this is not a quick fix. If you've got bone on both arthritis, rapamycin's not going to cure that. And if you've got a an artery with an embolism that's about ready to pop and give you a brain aneurysm, rapamycin's not going to fix that. Right, of course. But metabolically, every single cell in your body will start to work better. So you're slowing down biological aging. So would you say that this connects directly to soil-based organism research specifically? Yes, absolutely. They've discovered that during starvation diets, autophagy is massively activated, but you get to a point, everything has to be in balance. And so too much autophagy is just as bad as the overactivation of mTOR on a constant basis. And some scientists have said that rapamycin has been mischaracterized as an immunosuppressant. It's really an immune system modulator. So again, Mm. everything has to be in balance. And because everybody, most people alive today are so out of balance in the mTOR autophagy ratio, most people need to stimulate their activation of autophagy. And in the second edition of my book, I proposed the mTOR autophagy theory of aging to really address how critically important this is. Walk us through that. Sure. Well, I, I mentioned that most people, because they're consuming nutrients all the time, 
are constantly activating mTOR, and that's what I call mTOR syndrome. And when you constantly activate mTOR, it's kind of an analogy could be driving your car with the pedal to the metal all the time. You can't go that way all the time. And if you think about athletes, a sprinter, a sprinter can't sprint all the time. They have to get to a point where they have to stop and rest and regenerate. So we always need these periods of rest. And I sometimes equate autophagy with sleep. We think about sleep as our rest mode, and yet there's an enormous amount of activity going on during sleep, especially what's called the glymphatic system, which is similar to the lymphatic system, but the glymphatic system happens in the brain during sleep when brain cells shrink by 40 to 60%, and this is seen in animal models, which opens up the channels in the brain to detoxify because the brain is active going, going, going all day. And during sleep, the downtime, you detoxify your brain. Well, the sleep is the rest phase. Autophagy is the rest phase. You have to have both of these phases for good health and good detoxification. And basically, autophagy is detoxification of every cell in your body. And it's also the process of rebuilding and renewing your body. And if you don't get that process, you're going to be using all of these damaged and misfolded proteins and cellular components that aren't functioning at an optimal level, and that is accelerating the aging process. Now, whenever you talk about rapamycin and how it essentially makes all cells in our body work better, I have a hard time not thinking of omega-3s, hmm. helping all cells in our body work better. And I wonder if there is a direct correlation that has yet been found that ties rapamycin to regulation of inflammation. And the reason I bring that up is because we know that that's part of how omega-3s work, right? They help to resolve inflammation so that your body can return to homeostasis, the balance that you were just speaking of, like helping to ensure that our systems can remain in balance, that our immune system isn't overactive or underactive, that perhaps, yes, if you take too much rapamycin, it's too much stimulation and therefore your immune system goes into suppression mode. Right. And similarly, when we don't get the right balance of the fats that our bodies need to thrive, then we also are thrown out of whack. So mm -hmm. what is this connection? Is there one? Am I just dreaming it up? No, there's definitely a connection. There's a couple things to talk about here. First of all, inflammation is so strongly associated with aging. They've created a new term called inflammaging. And we know that one of the benefits of rapamycin is that it suppresses inflammation. And a major source of inflammation is in senescent cells. Old cells that are past their lifetime, they should get recycled and eliminated, but they haven't. And so they stay in place and then they start emitting inflammatory cytokines. Mm. Well, this is another area where rapamycin can help. Rapamycin suppresses senescent cells. And as long as we're talking about inflammation, I'll take a little segue and jump back to the gut microbiome because this is so critical for the regulation of everything related to health. When you have bacterial imbalance in your gut microbiome, too many bad bacteria, not enough good bacteria, that's the major source of inflammation in the body. And this is called dysbiosis. And a healthy microbiome should be roughly about 85 or 90% good bacteria and only 10 to 15% bad bacteria. We all have some bacteria in our systems that are potentially harmful, but when the good bacteria dramatically dominate, then the bad bacteria don't cause problems. But when you get out of balance, then the reason the bad bacteria are bad is that they submit, emit substances that are inflammatory. And so you got inflammation. And when you have gut inflammation, it causes a compound called zonulin to get expressed. And zonulin rips open the tight junctions and allows things to leak through into your systemic circulation. So when that's what they refer to as leaky gut, right? That's a, you bet, leaky gut or intestinal permeability. And one of the worst things that happens when you have gut inflammation and you get leaky gut is that compounds called lipopolysaccharides or LPS leak from your gastrointestinal system into your systemic circulation. Now, these compounds, lipopolysaccharides, are part of the cell surface of many of the bacteria in your intestinal tract. We all have them. 
but they're supposed to stay in your intestinal tract and get eliminated through bowel movements. When you have leaky gut, these lipopolysaccharides leak into systemic circulation. They are highly inflammatory. And there's a fabulous study that I've made slides out of and I talk about in my lectures and presentations where they took healthy young individuals, young adults, and divided them into two groups. And this is called a double-blind placebo crossover trial. So in the first part of the study, there's the placebo group and the lipopolysaccharide group. And the group getting lipopolysaccharides, the injection was so low, there were no symptoms whatsoever. Halfway through the study, they reverse it. And the people that got the placebo the first time get the injected lipopolysaccharide the second time. And the lipopolysaccharide people get the placebo. At the end of the test, everybody either in the first phase or the second phase of the trial has got low-dose lipopolysaccharide injection. But again, the dose was so low, nobody had any symptoms whatsoever. When they did the blood work, they found that during lipopolysaccharide injection, there was a huge increase in inflammatory markers, 25-fold increase in tumor necrosis alpha and a 100-fold increase in interleukin-6. These are highly inflammatory markers, which means you are getting tissue destruction and organ destruction, accelerating biological aging, even though you don't have any symptoms. So this is why it's so critical that people eat a plant-based diet with diverse range of plant-based foods so you create a healthy microbiome. And people have a tremendous misunderstanding of commercial probiotics. Americans think more is better. Mine's got 50 billion. Mine's got 100 billion. Mine's got 200 billion. Thinking that it's not even true. You test what's on the shelf, and we all know that that's problematic. So I would like to just help people understand as simply as I can what a crossover study is. It's basically like it helps to remove placebo effect in a way because halfway through the trial, the person who was on the placebo now gets the active or the part that where the people who started active now get placebo. And so because of that, because that crossover occurs, it controls for the placebo effect, which could be as much as 30%. And there is this whole biology of belief that goes into the effect of medicine will have on us, even just by telling you I'm giving you a medicine that can make a difference. And so I think they're really interesting And the fact that you're looking at blood markers that tell the story as well is not just relying on something like survey of how people felt is critical. I also want to point to something that I think we should all be thinking about here because one of the things that we're doing right now at Orlo Nutrition is really focusing on a person's omega-3 index. And we're helping them to define and determine what their omega-3 index is before they begin supplementing and after four months of supplementing. And the reason this is so important is because you don't necessarily know if you're consuming too little omega-3. You might not actually have a visible outward component or you might not feel like you're really in a crummy spot. But the reality is if you have latent low omega-3 for a long, long time in your system, you'll get through your 20s and 30s without that many symptoms probably. But once you hit your 40s and 50s, these things start to compound. And suddenly it's like, oh, I've got brain fog. I'm experiencing early onset menopause. I am having challenges with my joints. Again, on and on and on. And while this isn't purely and only related to omega-3s, we do know that when you get enough omega-3s, and if you're getting up to 8 to 12% index, which means you've got 8 to 12% omega-3s, EPA and DHA in your cells, that all-cause mortality drops. Significant. Now, that's significant. And I suspect that what you're talking about with mTOR, it's, a, it's just another indicator. It's another piece that is missing in the puzzle when our microbiome is totally out of whack, when we're not eating enough fibers, prebiotics, and probiotics with our diet. And I say with our diets because you can't necessarily always get this kind of activity from taking a pill. Like you go to that shelf and you say, I'm going to take 30, what is it? 30 billion CFU of a particular lactobacillus strain or something. And it was not refrigerated. It was on the counter and its potency declined sharply after it was encapsulated. 
So in some of these cases, you really need to be going to fermented foods and even just to be consuming something like your salad (laughs) on the daily because you're giving your body the rudimentary, the food that your probiotic strains consume, the prebiotics that they need to thrive. Exactly. I'll step off that soapbox for now. (laughs) One of the things to tell people about taking commercial probiotics, most of them don't survive transit through the harsh acid environment of the stomach. The acidity in the stomach is anywhere from 10,000 to 100,000 times stronger acid than the acid base level in the intestinal, the small intestines and the colon. So the acidity in your stomach is one of the front lines of your immune system to kill everything that goes in your mouth. And so a lot of the commercial probiotics get killed before they ever get into the small intestine and the colon. What do you think of spore form probiotics? I'm sure that people who are often perusing the supplement aisles have heard of them, the shelf-stable spore form probiotics. Well, the problem with that, Karina, is that when those bacteria if they do arrive in the colon, they have to find these fiber-rich foods and the polyphenols and start to create the postbiotic metabolites. That all takes time. And as I mentioned earlier, most people aren't consuming nearly enough dietary fibers and polyphenols, so they're not able to effectively produce the postbiotic metabolites. So most commercial probiotics are not nearly as effective as people think they are. Yeah, we get back to the same story. A pill isn't going to solve it if you don't have the food that your food needs essentially in your body. Yeah. I mean, it's so critical. Now, I venture to guess that you would also advise people to, generally speaking, take their supplements, their food supplements with their meals. Are there exceptions that you tend to recommend? No, I think uh, all the supplements are fine to take with meals. And some of them, it's very critically important to take with meals. For example, Vitamin D and coenzyme Q10 are fat-soluble nutrients. We don't absorb fat-soluble nutrients very efficiently. So it's really important to take those types of nutritional supplements with a fat-containing meal. Yeah. And while our omega-3s are in the polar lipid form, they're absorbed just fine day or night with or without yeah, food, they, yeah, generally no, speaking? They'll absorb fine anytime. And I'm totally on the bandwagon with you. The omega-3s are critically important. They go into the anti-inflammatory prostaglandin pathway and help to suppress inflammation. And there's an omega-3 and omega-6 ratio. And our dietary intake of these omega-3s and omega-6s should be anywhere from 1 to 1, 1 to 2, maybe 1 to 4. But in the standard American diet, it's oftentimes 1 to 20 or 1 to 30 people. Yeah, I know. It's so awful. Omega-6, not nearly enough omega-3. And the omega-6s are pro-inflammatory and accelerate aging. Yeah. And one of the things that I think we have as a common misconception, especially by those that are plant-based eating whole foods for the most part, they'll think, oh, well, I'm getting enough omega-3s because I'm eating walnuts and I'm eating flax seeds and chia seeds. But our systems aren't super great at converting those particular alpha-linolenic fatty acids that are alpha-linolenic acid that's present in those terrestrial plant sources into EPA and DHA. And so what we've found, and we've been running this Tested by You campaign now for a few months, is that the first tests, people are generally seeing three and a half to five or 6% on the high side of their omega-3 index. Mm -hmm. We really want to see people coming in at 8% plus to reach their full potential, so to speak. I know that when I went fully plant-based and was just taking a couple soft gels a day, like a standard dose... I was testing at six and a half percent. And that's pretty good for a vegetarian, right? And I say pretty good for a vegetarian because vegetarians and vegans tend to test at three and a half to four percent, which is among the worst, even worse than most Americans on a standard American diet. Sadly, that's true. It's just hard to get enough of these particular fats without supplementation. And so for those of you that are interested in learning about your omega-3 index, I just have to say, We're running this Tested by You program right now and probably over the next six months. If you subscribe to the Tested by You program, you'll get a two-month supply of omega-3 with our beautiful glass bottle and an omega-3 index test. I'm going to hold it up for you now. So we cover the cost of this. This is 50 bucks to buy directly from OmegaQuant, but we're covering the cost for this. And then with your third shipment, which will include your fifth and sixth month, you receive a second test so you can test before you begin consuming your omega-3s and after four months of supplementation, because it generally takes three to four months to see 
the omega-3s really make their way into your tissues so that you'll see measurable results. And then from there, if you're not quite to 8%, you know, and you can make further modifications to get there. That could be increasing your dose slightly or changing your eating habits. I personally don't like consuming fish anymore, even though I loved the flavor of it. And I was an omnivore for a long, long time just because I'm concerned with the health of our oceans. And I don't think our farming practices are actually good for ecosystems. So I could have a deep discussion with anybody on that particular topic, but I'm into reading this book right now called The New Fish, which is all about salmon farming, put out by Patagonia Press. Simon Setra and Kieto Osli, Norwegians who are speaking out against fish. And, and that's a very unpopular subject for Norwegians to be taking on, frankly. <laughs> At any rate. So I want to go ahead and offer you the floor for a moment as we prepare to wrap to help people understand if they're really interested in getting the full benefit of rapamycin, how they would do that, how they go about even talking to their doctor about this particular thing mm -hmm. for its life extension capabilities, and what more you might have to share as resources. Sure. That's a great question. Thanks for bringing it up because I've got a lot to say on this. First of all, most doctors are not familiar with rapamycin. Secondly, most of the doctors that are familiar with rapamycin only know about it as an immune suppressing drug or as chemotherapy. So it's a process of needing to educate your doctor. And that's the purpose of my book. My book will accelerate the learning curve of anyone who reads it. And many people will give their doctor my book. I, I get many reports of this or buy a copy for their doctor and get their doctor educated about it. And because my book just shows exactly all the research that supports the fact that intermittent dosing of rapamycin is very safe and effective. And so if you can get your doctor to write a prescription for it, then that'll take care of it for you. Many people can't find a doctor that'll write a prescription or their doctor refuses. There are a number of doctors who will do telemedicine visits and write a doctor's prescription. Send the prescription to you, you take it to the drugstore and get it filled. So that's the second option, doing telemedicine visits. The third option, which is really quite new and I think very interesting, there's a company called International Anti-Aging Systems. They've been around since the 1990s. They specialize in making hard-to-obtain life extension drugs available. A couple of years ago, they started to get interested in rapamycin. They've contracted with an Indian pharmaceutical company to make a proprietary brand of rapamycin called Rapapro. And this Indian manufacturing company utilizes a new nanotechnology so that the rapamycin particle size is very, very small so you get good absorption. And I have personally been ordering this product and doing my own plasma blood level test to ensure that it's well absorbed and it, it is really a superior product. The price is also very reasonable on this product. For people that are taking six milligrams of rapamycin once a week, the cost is about $35 a month. Hmm. That was my next question. So <laughs> some doctors are really upset about this. They think it's illegal for people to be buying a prescription drug without a doctor's prescription. The international anti-aging systems people have on their website that you should have a prescription from your doctor, but they don't check that. So you just go on their website and you order it. Another thing that makes this legal is that back in the 1980s, during the HIV crisis, the FDA made a policy decision change. They deemed that it was legal for people to import up to a three-month supply of their own personal medications. Hmm. Another factor about this whole process of Rapapro being ordered from overseas is that International Anti-Aging Systems does not sell to the general public. It's a membership organization. Hmm. How do you become a member? One cent of your initial order is your membership fee. So it's all legal. They've been doing this for years. And they say that maybe one out of 100 orders might get stopped by customs and immigration, and they will reimburse people for that. But I've ordered it a number of times. It takes about three to four weeks to get sent. To, and this company is formed by a couple of uh, Brits who actually live in Hong Kong. And for some international banking reasons, their product gets shipped from Taiwan. And one other thing I'll mention to people if they want to order Rapapro, on the website, they explain they cannot accept payment in credit cards. So there's two ways 
you can make payment. One is with a bank wire transfer. The second is with an e-check. When I checked into paying with a bank wire transfer, I found my bank wanted to charge me $45 for a wire transfer. I figured that's a ripoff. So I chose the e-check payment option. It's very easy. You just click on e-check. You put in your bank routing number and your account number and just goes through seamlessly. So that's a way that people can get by without the extra charge of a wire transfer. Mm-hmm. Well, I know people are reticent to share that kind of information with sources they don't trust, especially of late with identity theft and yeah. banking, bank fraud and all that jazz too. And I'll send you information to post on the show notes, uh, Karina, about Rapa Pro and all of this information is summarized. The other thing I'd like to emphasize is who can and who cannot take rapamycin. Because mTOR stimulates growth, utilizes the nutrients to build and grow, you would never inhibit mTOR in children or infants because that's a yeah, time. Yeah, you'd never give it to a child, anybody that's in a growth phase, right? right? Also, pregnant women should never take rapamycin because pregnancy is the most rapid time of growth and growing a fetus that we know of. I think that people can start to consider taking rapamycin somewhere around age 40 or 50, but we don't know what's optimal. Somebody that's obese at age 30 and has metabolic syndrome, maybe they can start taking rapamycin earlier. We just haven't done the studies to determine this, but I think it's fine for people around 40 or 50 to start taking rapamycin to experience the lifelong reduction of the aging process. It's not just life extension. It's increasing your health span as well as your lifespan. So I'm about to turn 47, and I think by the time this airs, I will have. And so I'd be a candidate for this. Absolutely. What sort of changes would I expect in the first, let's say, 30 days? Great question. Thank you. I'm 80 now. Uh, Just became an octogenarian last a couple months ago. When I started taking rapamycin two years ago, The only thing I noticed over the first six months is some loss of visceral abdominal fat and a little bit of weight loss. Oh, darn. Yeah. (laughs) But (laughs) you really don't notice a lot. And what I try to get people to really understand is that this is a long-term commitment to slowing down your aging process. What do you notice differently when you take a dose of vitamin D? or your vitamin C. You don't feel dramatically different the next day. You take it because you know what's important. That's the same with rapamycin. It's the long-term commitment to slowing down biological aging, rectangularizing your aging curve and compression of morbidity so you increase your healthy years. There's not too much benefit to being elderly in a wheelchair on an oxygen mask. You want to have vibrant vitality in your aging process. And that's what rapamycin helps you do. Are there any other contraindications that you think we should be aware of other than pregnancy Um, and being a child? The only thing I will admit is that this is such a new area of research. We haven't done human clinical trials on people with a lot of different types of diseases. However, in animal models, virtually every single age-related disease responds to rapamycin therapy. And so from the animal models, we get the suggestion or the implication that this will be helpful in slowing down the aging process for all types of diseases in humans, but mm-hmm. no other contraindications. I mean, it's the only kind, the only difference is improved health. You, you're <laughs> not having any problems associated with it unless you overdose. And that can be, you know, balance is critical for everything. Yeah. And so, so many people are suffering from metabolic disorders or thyroid conditions, and none of that would be contraindicated here. No. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for all of that. And as a final reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only. If you have a health condition, you should be seeking the help of your natural health professional, of your doctor, your medical professional, and perhaps even getting them a copy of this book so they can help guide you on your journey, especially if you're interested in trying out rapamycin as you age to... Um, and I'll mention to people, Karina, that uh, they can order my book from Life Extension by calling uh, 866-598-6747. And if people order my book through Life Extension, they will get a free six-month subscription to the Life Extension magazine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good resource too. 
Now, you also have this book up on Amazon. And yeah. so I'm yeah. going to go ahead and put this book in my shop, Fabulous. which also features Orlo's products. And that's just amazon.com slash shop slash Karina Belizzi. I know my name is long, but look at show notes. You can figure that out too. And I'll include the link there as well. But I really just want to make sure that people have no trouble finding the book. And so many of us have just become accustomed to using the Amazon machine. Thank you so much for joining me today, Ross. I really appreciate your time, you, your Karina. effort, your energy, and your enthusiasm for this particular thing. Well, I'm considering you. trying the Rapa Pro myself. You, you are a health warrior out there on the front lines, and I really commend you for all the work that you're doing. Thank you so much, Ross. Take care. Bye for now. As always, I will be sure to include links to where you can learn more about Ross Pelton, his work, and rapamycin with show notes. Visit orlonutrition.com for our complete blog about this episode, including features that you won't find anywhere else. And I'll remind you too that listeners of this show qualify for a bonus discount at checkout. All you have to do is use the coupon code NWC for nutrition without compromise. That's just NWC. If you're interested in the Tested by You program, you'll also receive a bonus discount on that. And you have to understand that when you commit to that first six months of subscription, you're getting 15% off every day and you're getting $100 worth of tests done by a third party, not us. We get anonymized results, which just means we get birth date, sex, and what your results were. So we can see how you progressed over time as well, but without specific data on you in your own person. It's anonymized so that we can just see the effect of our product over time. Thank you all for joining me today on this journey. If you have questions about what we covered, please reach out via our social channels at Orlo Nutrition or send me an email directly from the Orlo Nutrition website. As we close today's show, I hope that you'll raise a cup of your favorite beverage with me as I say my closing words. Here's to your health. Thanks for listening to Nutrition Without Compromise. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to learn more, visit orlonutrition.com and join our mailing list. You'll gain access to complete show notes, features, and informative blogs because nutrition shouldn't be an either-or.